turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've been in a series called Growth God's Way, and we've been examining and asking the question, uh, what are some of the characteristics of churches that are healthy, of churches that experience growth both spiritually and numerically? Um, how does God unleash his power in a community and in a, a local church? These are the questions that we've been exploring, and I think we find ourselves in part nine uh, in our series, Growth God's Way, and we're actually out of the book of Acts. And so if you've been anxiously awaiting to get out of Acts, uh, here we are. And we find ourselves in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you're familiar with Acts and the New Testament, continue to go you know, to, to the right in your Bible, uh, and you'll find 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians after the book of Romans. Uh, we'll be in chapter, well, I tell you what, we're going to start in chapter 8. And so find 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, our main text, that is the text that we're, we're really going to focus on, will be in chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Uh, but to get there, um, we need to see a bit of the context. We need to see what Paul has been saying because it makes a difference in, uh, in what he says in chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. So as you are getting there and getting your Bibles uh, and everything else that you need, uh, I'm going to ask this. Let's go ahead and pray one more time and we'll ask God's blessing on his word and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for the morning. It's been so good to reflect on Christ and to reflect on his death uh, for our sins, to reflect on um, his uh, sacrifice, to reflect on his giving up of his rights uh, for our good, to save humanity, that by simple faith and placing our trust that he is the son of God who lived a perfect life uh, for us in our place so that we can receive his righteousness in believing uh, simply that he bore our sins, that he took our punishment, our guilt, our shame, that if we believe and place our faith in that, that we are new people, that we are born again, that we are forgiven, and that we are in the process of being made new into Christ's image. We're grateful for the reminder of that. Spirit, would you come now, help us, help me, uh, help me to speak words that are true and accurate. Help uh, us as we hear your word. Uh, It is indeed your word, uh, written at the lips and the pens of inspired men. And so help us to hear and to understand and to be changed, because we don't want to merely be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning uh, with a bit of a fill-in-the-blank kind of a sentence. And so I will read uh, the beginning of a sentence to you, and then I will ask you to fill in the blank. I would bet uh, that the vast majority of you can do this. Um, And so here here it goes. Uh, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain... What? Unalienable rights that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, so we're all familiar with this. Where does this come from, by the way? Anyone know? The Declaration of Independence is where this comes from, the second paragraph, I believe. Uh, we're all really versed, uh, maybe from school-aged on, uh, not only on our government and how it was founded and the history surrounding uh, the founding of this great nation, uh, but we're all intimately familiar with what seems to be a very a bedrock truth uh, to our existence here in America, and that is uh, the fact that we, uh, being endowed by our Creator, are not only made equally, but have these unalienable rights, these unalienable rights. And so here in America, when we talk about rights, uh, it kind of cuts to the heart of who we are as a people. 
We are a people that have rights. I, I want to show you an, a, a document, or at least a, a, an image of a portion of a document, and I want to ask if any of you knows what document this is. It's, 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 it's kind of hard and, and vague to see. This is the best image that I could get. You'll see Article 6, Article 7. Anyone want to take a guess as to what this document is? Bill of Rights. Did I hear that? Excellent. This is our Bill of Rights. Um, uh, our Bill of Rights uh, essentially uh, constitutes the first, uh, what were the first ten commitment, uh, commitments, amendments, excuse me, the first amendments to our Constitution. And when you read about it, it's interesting. Uh, the, the Bill of Rights essentially was placed in by the legislators, the people creating this Constitution, because after the crafting of it, they feared that the government might become too powerful, and they feared that uh, the individual in the country might lose uh, power or rights. And so what they did is uh, they voted, and they essentially, they said, we have to have this Bill of Rights, which, which essentially placed certain restrictions on the government and guaranteed certain civil liberties, certain civil rights. And so the Constitution uh, was not going to be passed unless there was this Bill of Rights, which therefore outline uh, kind of the bedrock of this idea of the fact that we have rights as citizens of this country. Now, I, I bring up the idea of our rights because in our text this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 particularly, but actually all of 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 Paul really is talking about this notion of a believer's, of a Christian's rights. In fact, he uses it, I think, seven times in these two chapters. He's talking about rights. But interestingly, interestingly enough, um, he's not talking about our rights as Americans. Uh, He's talking about our rights as Christians. And we're going to hear what Paul has to say as he addresses this issue of the use of our liberty, the use of our rights, that which we prefer, if you will. And uh, while we're very much in tune and used to hearing the idea of us as a people demanding our rights, I mean, isn't that ingrained into kind of who we are? We demand our rights. Um, and so it may come as a bit of a shock when we talk about and hear Paul talk about rights. He's not going to tell us that we shouldn't demand our rights, which is what we're so used to as Americans. He's going to talk about our rights as Christians, but instead of encouraging us to demand our rights, our liberties, our preferences, he's going to encourage us and talk about his example of how he and the Corinthian church and how Grace Bible Church and how you as a believer in Christ should indeed give up your rights for the sake of others. Not demand them, but give them up for the benefit of other Christians and primarily in our text this morning for the benefit of those who are not Christians. And so let's jump in. Uh, if you, uh, you want to know the outline, where we're going, uh, you like that kind of thing. Basically, we've got three points, three sections here, and then we're going to spend the bulk or a good portion of our time talking about what this means for us. Uh, but in, 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 write this down. Uh, giving up rights, uh, first bullet point, giving up rights. In chapter 8, essentially, of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that we should give up our rights for the sake of our fellow believers. So point number one, give up rights for fellow believers. Point number two, as we move into chapter 9, Paul will continue to talk about giving up rights. But he's going to give us a personal example. He's going to say, this is how I gave up my rights, not only for the benefit of other Christians, 
But he's going to move us into giving up our rights for the sake of reaching unbelievers. And so point number two, giving up rights. Paul's example. Paul's example, verses 1 through 18. 1 through 18 of chapter 9. Where we're going to spend the bulk of our time is point number three, and that is giving up our rights for unbelievers. In verses 19 through 23, Paul is going to share with us how we and he and every other Christian should give up our rights and preferences for the sake of reaching the lost. And so that's where we're going this morning. And so let's look together in chapter 8. Turn with me in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to begin because that's where Paul begins to talk about this idea of a Christian having rights and giving them up. And so as a little preface, we're going to read verses 9 through 11. So we're going to read just a chunk of this chapter, but I want to try my best to summarize it for you. Uh, Here's the issue at hand. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a bit of a response letter. And so if you read through Corinthians, what you'll find out is that uh, Paul has been having some correspondence with this church. And apparently they had written him a letter earlier and they had certain questions for him. And so this is kind of his response and he addresses other things. But the early uh, portions of 1 Corinthians, Paul is just kind of topical. He's dealing with certain topics because he's answering questions that this church um, had for him. And so in chapter 8, he's dealing with this question. The question at hand is this. Can a believer, remember this is in Corinth, which was a non-Jewish city, so these are Gentiles, non-Jews, making up this church. And the question that they had for him regarded this. Paul, can we eat meat that had been sacrificed in pagan worship to idols that are then sold on the open markets? That's the question. You may be thinking, meat, sacri- what in the world is this all about? Um, but here's, here's a little context for you. Uh, in those days, in Corinth and in many other cities, uh, there would be um, temples that were made to idols, that were made to false gods. Uh, there would be temples for emperor worship at the time. There would be temples for all sorts of worship of other deities. And as a part, a very common part of being involved in a worship service, if you will, for that kind of a deity, involved uh, uh, several things. Uh, But but it chiefly involved uh, having a meal together and uh, sacrificing uh, animals in worship to that god. And then what they would do is they would take the best animals, they would sacrifice them, and basically have a barbecue. And they would, as a part of the worship to this god, eat this meat. And so what would happen then is they would often take the, the remaining portions of the animals that had not been eaten in sacrifice and worship to this God, and uh, they were money savvy and they didn't want to lose out, so they would then sell it to the, lo- the local butcher. Does that make sense? They would sell it to the local butcher who would then go out on the open market and sell this really good, high-quality meat out for anyone. And the Corinthians wanted to know, can we eat that meat? Not in the temple in worship, but can we, can we eat it on the open market? It's being sold. Because probably many of them, before they placed their faith in Jesus, before they became Christians, would go to these idol-worshiping, eat, meat-eating, and other bad things happen there too, um, worship festivals. And in their mind's eye, this meat that was then sold on the market somehow you know, might be worshiping their former idols. And so they were sensitive to this. And essentially what Paul says in chapter 8 is this. He says, as a Christian, you have that right. 
He basically says, you have the right to do it. It's an amoral, and I'm going to use that word a lot, it's an amoral issue. It's not right, it's not inherently wrong. It's amoral. You can do it if you want to. It's within your freedoms. It's within your rights as a Christian. And so that's what he tells these guys. But there is a catch. He says, but you don't need to eat it if one of you, a fellow Christian, a fellow believer, still is with you and sees you or accompanies you and and they see you going and eating this meat. And even though they know that idols really aren't real and that these deities that they worshipped are not real gods, in their mind, in their sensitive conscience, it would be wrong. It would be wrong to eat this meat. They They didn't fully understand or accept the idea that it's just meat, you know, and that these idols are nothing. Um, so Paul says, yeah, you can do that. You can exercise your right if and only if you don't cause that weaker brother, he calls them a weaker brother or sister, to then be encouraged to follow in your footsteps, to go and to eat that meat with you. But really internally, even though it's right morally, it's wrong for them. Does that make sense? It's wrong for them to do that. And they struggle and they do it. And so let's hear what Paul has to say in summary. Uh, verses 9 through 11. This is a, a good summary. He says this. <clears throat> but take care that this right, notice the word, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That is the person who still thinks it's wrong. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, thus by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And so this is a bit of a summary. I hope you see the point. What I want us to see is this. Uh, Paul says... You have certain rights, you have certain uh, preferences that you can eat on and do on amoral issues. It's not right, it's not wrong. You can do it, but you need to give up that right if it's going to cause a weaker brother to stumble. Again, those who are weak in this context are Christians who think that this is wrong, even though it's not. They think it's wrong. To them, it's wrong. To their conscience, it's wrong, even though it's not a moral issue. Paul declares it not wrong. These are the weak people. And, he, and notice how he defines this term in verse uh, 9. But take care that this right. And so he introduces this idea, and he's going to be talking about Christians' rights. Essentially, is a right for a Christian, for me or you, is to do something that is amoral. It's not right, it's not wrong, it's a preference. It's not inherently bad, not inherently good, but it's within our freedom to do it. And so this is how Paul defines a right. Let me illustrate this for you. Um, when I was in college, I was, I think I was, ter- was going to be a senior in college, so I was 22, maybe 21 that year. And uh, I lived just for one summer with a group of guys, godly guys, Christian believers. They went to my church, and uh, we lived in a house together. And the oldest of us was probably, he was like a fifth-year senior, you know, fit four years into six kind of a guy, <laughs> which, hey, you know, he, he finished it. Um, and so he did that, and he, the point is he was the oldest of us. And uh, what he enjoyed doing, uh, I learned, was he, uh, on occasion, would bring in some alcohol into the house. And he would have a beer or something uh, that night. Um, and, and he obviously uh, 
you know, he never got drunk. He wasn't, you know, abusing anything like that. He was well within the scriptural bounds. But that was his preference. He liked to do that. And the point of the story is this. Uh, as I came to live with him that summer, and as there was another young man, well, I say young man, he was my age, 21-year-old guy, uh, who came to live with him, uh, he had a very different take on that issue. In fact, it made him nervous. It made him uncomfortable uh, that this friend of ours uh, would bring alcohol in the house. And because here's why. He, well, there's a long story to it. But for his conscience, he knew that it was permissible to drink alcohol. He was 21. Uh, he had the liberty to do that. But in, in, in his mind, if he was to, to do that, for him it would be wrong. For him it would be sin. That is the place that he came on that issue to. And that being said, he struggled with it because he would see um, our friend uh, having a beer every now and then. And it it, it made him want to pursue that. Does that make sense? He, he kind of thought, well, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay. And this conversation was had in kind of a house meeting. You know, we kind of had a talk as friends uh, in the household that summer. And all of this came to be known that our friend was really struggling with this and wanted to partake but knew he shouldn't. And he shared with us this internal struggle. So let me ask you this. Did my friend, the friend who liked to have a beer every now and then, was that his right as a Christian to do that? Absolutely. It was his right. It's an amoral issue if he doesn't abuse it, like all sorts of things. It was his right to do it. He could bring it into his house if he wanted to. But let me ask you this. Would he be sinning by then encouraging as he was, by partaking of his right, by encouraging this weaker brother to do it? Well, obviously, that became obvious to all of us that that was the case. And so you know what this friend of mine did? He was 22, I think, 23 Godly guy. He was one of the godliest guys I knew. He didn't demand his right. He gave it up. He threw it out. And for that summer, he did not drink in front of our friend because he knew that it was a 1 Corinthians 8 situation. He did not demand his right. He gave it up by way of illustration. So in chapter 8, this is what Paul says. He's establishing this theme. Give up your rights for the benefit of others. Then, jumping ahead to verse uh, chapter 9. Turn with me to chapter 9. We're just going to read a few verses in chapter 9. Paul continues uh, this argument, and he basically says, Hey, listen, I'm not preaching to you what I don't practice. He says, I do this. Take a look at my ministry. Take a look at how I... Uh, lived among you, Corinthians, before you became Christians, after you became Christians, I, in my own ministry, set the example of giving up my rights for the sake not only of other Christians, but for the sake of non-Christians. And he says this in verses 1 through 18. He essentially is going to say this. He says, hey, listen, I'm an apostle. I saw Jesus Christ resurrected. Jesus gave me my commission. I'm supposed to go to Gentiles. And isn't it my right as an apostle that when I go into a city and plant a church that those believers give me food, give me water, give me maybe some money to do my ministry? Don't I have the right to be supported in my ministry? Don't I have a right if I were to be married to bring along someone and essentially he says, yes, I have that right, but I have given up that right for the benefit of other people. And I've given up that right for the benefit of the gospel. So let's read this, verses 4 through 9, and then we're going to read verse 15, and then we're going to read verse 18, and I think we'll see this strong idea of giving up rights. Verses 4 through uh, 6, we'll start there. Do we, speaking of the apostles, do we not have the right to eat and drink, that is, to be provided food when we're ministering, uh, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter, 
Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He's essentially saying, all these other apostles have this right, don't I? And the answer is obviously, yes, he does. Verse 15, but notice what he does. He doesn't demand his rights. Uh, 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Essentially, he says, yes, I have the right. I have every right for you and anyone else when I'm ministering in that city to support me financially. But I don't. I don't. I practice what I preach and I give up my rights, not only for your sake as Christians, but he's going to go on to say in verse 18, but for the sake of the gospel. Hear this, because this is where he's leading us to. Verse 18. What then is my reward? That, and he'll tell us that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Essentially, what he says is that I have the right to be supported, but when I go into a city, I give it up because I want to give the gospel to unbelievers for free. I don't want them to feel obligated. I don't want them to think that I'm swindling them or just out for their money. So I don't take any support in that particular city where I'm sharing the gospel and planning a church. I don't take it. I give up my rights. So big picture, Paul says, hey, Corinthians, give up your rights for, uh, for other Christians. Then he says, hey, look what I did. I gave up my rights for the benefit of not only you, but of unbelievers. I want the gospel to be unhindered. So I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to give up whatever right as to so reach the gospel. A couple, I think, maybe modern day examples that really strike me as being very much in line with what Paul did. Um, how many of you are familiar with a, a guy, pastor, preacher, author, uh, by the name of John Piper? If you've been in this church, you better raise your hand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really like John Piper. I respect him. He's a, he's a great pastor, preacher, teacher, book writer, all that jazz. Here's the deal that strikes me about John Piper. Um, he has written, oh, God, 30 books, more, I don't know. He has written a ton of books. He almost... There was at one point where he would like write two or three a year books. And here's the deal. I found this out just recently when I was at his pastor conference. You know what he does with the proceeds of all of his books? He doesn't take one dime. Not one dime. In fact, he says that what he does is he has particular ministries or charities, and he has the publishers send his check directly to those ministries. He doesn't even want to have his hands on it. And so let me ask you this. Does he have the right to get rich from writing books? Yeah, of course he does. It's not inherently wrong. He has every right to do that. But does he make his books? And if you go on his webpage, you can download in PDF form every one of his books for free. Um, because he wants the gospel to go forward. That's why. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. An- another quick example, uh, all of us probably are familiar with Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren out at Saddleback. Um, I have heard just recently also, I think this is maybe a year or two old, but I bet it's still true that he gives like 90% of his salary away. 90% of his salary, he gives it away and he lives on 10. Yeah, sure, he probably makes millions of dollars. I don't know what he makes. Regardless, 10% of his salary is what he lives on. Um, and I think it's, it's for that reason. Uh, and so here we are. Paul has said, Given up your, give up your rights for the sake of a other Christian. Give up your rights for the sake of the gospel. And he's driving to to this point, which is where I want us to focus for the next few minutes. He says, and he's going to say later, I will do anything 
as long as it's not wrong or breaking the law of Christ, I will do anything to not hinder the gospel going forth to an unbeliever. Uh, to an unbeliever. I will do anything. I will give up any right, any preference. This is where he's going. So let's do this. Let's read verses 19 through 23 of chapter 9. He goes on to say in verses 19 through 23 that he will give up his rights and that the Corinthians should and that we should, as a church and as individuals, give up our rights for the sake of reaching the lost. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So he's a free servant. He's a free slave. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. Those under the law, that referring to the Mosaic law, uh, I became as one under the law, parentheses, though not being myself under the law, in parentheses, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, that is Jews, I mean non-Jews, I became as one outside of the law, parentheses, not being outside of the law of God, uh, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, in parentheses, that I might win those who are outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have, in summary, I have become all things to all people, that my all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Uh, and so, I want to share a few things here before we apply. Basically what Paul says is, I will give up my rights to reach an, uh, an unbeliever. And what he means is this, as we see in this passage. He says, I will participate in any custom, in any practice, in any tradition, in any activity. I will do anything when I'm with an unbeliever, whether a Jewish unbeliever or a Gentile unbeliever. I will do anything so long as it's not sinful, so long as Christ doesn't forbid it to identify with that person, to connect with them, to gain a hearing, to put away a stumbling block or an offense, I will do anything to reach them. Dr. Dr. Chadwick, he has written a book, All Things to All Men, which is obviously from this passage. In it, he says this. He defines what Paul is doing. He says, Paul did everything amoral. There's our word. He did everything amoral with a view to bringing people to the Savior. And so notice how this played out in his life. Notice in verse 20, he said, to the Jews I came, I became like a Jew. To those under the law, which refers to the Jews, I I became as one under the law, although I'm not under the law myself. This is all confusing to us. Basically what Paul says is this, when I'm with a Jewish crowd and they're not Christian, I will uh, voluntarily put myself uh, under under their customs, under their law. I will... Uh, make this sacrifice. I will do that custom. I will go to that festival. Not to become justified, not to be right with God, not because I have to, but because I don't want to put a stumbling block before me and them. I want them to listen when I share the gospel. That's what he says. And then he says with Gentiles in verse 21, those not under the law, he says, hey, I'll eat non-kosher foods. Bring on the pig is basically what he says. I will eat uh, with them. I will do whatever it takes so far as, notice there's a caveat, not that I'm without the law. I'm under the law of Christ. That is, he doesn't say, uh, to the adulterer, I became an adulterer so that I might win the adulterer. To the drunk, I became a drunk so that I might win the drunk. That's not what he's saying. 
What he's saying is, I will put away anything amoral to reach you. (laughs) And I will participate in anything that's not wrong to reach you. Uh, Verse 22, he mentions the weak again. Remember, uh, the weak are those uh, who think that something is wrong, even though it's really not. In their conscience, it's wrong. And so here, I think he's referring to unbelievers. Oftentimes in this culture, there were those who were non-Jews, who were pagans, if you will, who just got tired of emperor worship and tired of pagan idol worship. And they're like, man, this is grossly immoral, and this is, uh, this is just not for me. This can't be right. And so they were, they were attracted to Judaism. They were like, this is nice, some morals, some beliefs. Even though they didn't become Jews, they didn't become circumcised, they weren't Jews, they had sensitivities towards idol worship and those kind of things. And what Paul says is, hey, I'm going to flex for them too. I will do anything for the sake of the gospel. And so, here we come uh, with uh, our time remaining. Basically what Paul has said is, give up your rights for unbelievers Excuse me, give up your rights for other Christians for their benefit. Give up your rights for unbelievers. Uh, And so how do we do that? How do we do that? So this is the application point. So jot a few things down. I've got three application points. And the first one is this. Give up your individual rights for unbelievers. We need, I think, from this passage to give up our individual rights for the sake of unbelievers. In this particular case, uh, what that meant for Paul was he may not like eating pork because he wasn't used to it. And that may, that may not be his preference, but he'll do it when he's with a Gentile. He will give up his right and his preferences to reach that believer. And so we need to as well. So what does that look like for us? Let me suggest just a couple ways, and believe me, there are a myriad of ways, and I want to encourage you to really think about this in your life. What are some unnecessary stumbling blocks between you and a lost person that are unnecessary? But here are a couple that I've thought of. Number one, maybe it's the language that we use when we speak to unbelievers. Uh, so let me ask you this. Let me play a little scenario before you. You're, you're talking to your coworker, you're on break, or it's lunch hour or whatever, and you're sharing with them, and they're like, man, you go to church. What's that all about? And you're like, well, let me share with you what I believe. And you say, you say this, because of the incarnation, you need to repent, and then you'll be justified, and you'll get saved. What are they going to say to you? They're going to be like, uh, I'm going to go eat my lunch with that guy. <laughs> Um, okay, what did you put in, the, in, in your drink? You know, they're, they're, they're going to be confused. Now, here's the question. Is it within our rights as a believer to use biblical language? Well, sure. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. You can say justified. You can say saved. It's not wrong. But the question is, in your conversation with a believer, is it an unnecessary hindrance? Maybe what you can say is um, something like this. Um, listen, uh, because... God became man. Because God became man, what you need to do is you need to turn from, turn from yourself and you need to turn to Jesus. And when you do that, you're going to be made right with God. And when you're made right with God, you're going to be rescued. You're not going to be separated from God anymore. And you'll be saying the exact same thing, uh, but with words maybe that they can understand. And so in our language, maybe this is one way that we can give up our rights. Uh, Secondly, what about our time? Man, this is a big one, isn't it? I mean, we as Christians have the right to use our time and to go places however we want. So if I want to go bowling tonight, I can go bowling. If I want to go to the mall, I can go to the mall. If I want to spend the whole day with my family, I can do that. It's not not moral, it's amoral. Um, But here's the deal. Are we willing maybe to sacrifice the right to spend our time and our schedules and our activities 
uh, for the sake maybe of connecting with an unbeliever. So for instance, maybe you know um, a lady and her only day off is Friday uh, and she likes to go shopping. And maybe you are not a shopping kind of gal and uh, that's really not your preference. Malls give you headaches like they do me. Um, You don't like it. But this is what this person likes to do. And she's your friend. Maybe you can give up your right to spend the evening at home watching a movie and uh, you can go to your friend with the mall. Uh, guys, maybe it's uh, Sunday afternoon. I don't know about you, but I'm, I, I like to take naps Sunday afternoon. Uh, it's, it's a good thing to do. It's my right. <laughs> it's my right to do it. Um, but, you know, maybe you have a buddy, and he's not a Christian, uh, and you want to spend time with him, and he really likes NASCAR. He likes cars going around and around and around and around, around a million times. Go figure, right? No offense, sorry guys, if you like NASCAR, it's not my thing. But this guy likes it, and maybe you're like me, and you don't. Man, I'd rather do a lot of things than watch that. Um, But maybe you do it. Maybe you don't take your nap. Maybe you give up your right for a nap to do that. Um, Here's an example. Uh, Not to make myself look good, because there are a lot of ways that I'm sure I fail to sacrifice for the good of unbelievers. Uh, When I was uh, doing youth ministry in Dallas, there was a group of students who, there was a high school, a large high school, largely Hispanic uh, high school, right next door, literally across the street. And we were reaching out to them, and on Wednesday nights, a large group of them would come to our Wednesday night uh, youth ministry, um, but they would miss the bus because they lived like 15 minutes away. And so what they would choose to do is miss the bus, not get their ride home, come hang out at the church and, you know, talk to me while I'm trying to do my work or whatever, and uh, then they would stay for youth ministry, but here's the deal. If they were to do that, which is the only way that they could come to our ministry, um, they wouldn't have a ride home because the only way they would get home is the bus. And so guess who decided decided to do it? Youth pastor, right? Now let me ask you, was it my right to say, listen, it's 8 o'clock, my ministry time is over, they don't pay me to spend an extra hour on the road to drive you home? Is that my right? Yeah, it's my right. They don't, it's not in my contract. I, I, could, I could do that. Um, but I didn't do that because I wanted them to come. And so after 8 o'clock, I would load up our 15-passenger van or two or three of them, and we'd drive down to southwest Dallas and uh, to a place that, you know, was rough. You wouldn't want to live there, and I wouldn't want to live there. Um, but I sacrificed my time. So that's, that's an illustration. How can you, in your relationship with unbelievers, do that? Um, That's the thrust of this sermon. Uh, I want to share a quick quote with you. So that's point number one. We're going to skip point number two, but point number three is a big one. Um, We do this as individuals. We do this as a church as well. Um, As a church, we need to make specific decisions that will say, uh, we want to connect to our culture as a whole. And so as leadership and as people who come to grace, we need to ask the question, is there anything in our church culture that is, um, that's a hindrance to the gospel? I mean, it's not necessary. It's an amoral issue. It's not right or wrong. Maybe it's how we dress, the dress code of a church, or maybe it's the music, or maybe it's uh, how we have our building look. There are all sorts of amoral issues that churches have to make decisions on to say, are we in our culture, given whatever our culture's preferences are on a bunch of amoral issues, are we doing our best to not put a stumbling block? So that's application number two, although it's quick and sweet, because I want to focus on the third one. And that is, this is something that can be construed to look like uh, what I would call seeker-sensitive church. And so 
I'm not advocating that. And I don't think Paul is advocating that. So the third point is this. Never give up the gospel. This Paul is not talking about this. He's not saying, man, when I went to the Jews, I, I did all their laws and all their uh, rituals, and then, and then when they asked me, well, how, how do you get right with God? And, and Paul says, well, I think it's Jesus, but no, it's really through doing this stuff. He didn't give on the gospel. When he went to those who were not Jews, and they asked him, man, what's this all about? He didn't say, well, if you want to keep going to those pagan festivals, you can. And just add Jesus. Jesus can be another God for you. He didn't bend on the gospel. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I may save some. But what he's not saying is that we sin with other unbelievers to identify them. What he's not saying is we change the gospel or water down the truth of it just because people might be offended. That's what some churches do. Um, and we're not going to do that. Um, Paul didn't do that. So let me close with this quote and then an invitation. Uh, John MacArthur, really good author, says this, and I think he's right on. He says, To condescend to meet somebody at their own level is to set aside a a liberty that I have that is optional, to come down, to meet that guy where he is. But to compromise is to set aside a truth that I have no business setting aside. If a man or a woman is offended by the truth of the word of God, that's his or her problem. But if a man is offended by some behavior that I'm doing that isn't necessary, then I'll stop doing that. That's my problem. And I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here. So we don't give up the gospel. So in conclusion this morning, uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind tour of two chapters in the Bible, but I hope you see the strong threads of Paul giving up rights for the sake of other people. And so why do we do this? Let me get down to the motivational question. Why do we give up our rights for other Christians, like my friend with alcohol? Or why do we give up our rights for unbelievers? I mean, why do we do this? Paul says so, but... That may not be good enough. What's the motivation? Um, We do it because of what we celebrated at communion. Let me me bring it back to uh, the bread and the wine and the body and the blood of Christ. We do it because Jesus shed his body for us and he shed his blood for us. We do it because Jesus is the ultimate right giver upper. I know that's not a word, but you know what I mean. He's the ultimate person who gave up his rights because he had a body and he had blood when he was bruised and and crucified because he gave up his right to be eternally in fellowship with the Father, not having flesh and blood and bones, which, by the way, he created. Um, He gave up his right to be with God from eternity past in perfect fellowship with God and perfect contentment with God. He gave up unhindered glory like you can't imagine and unfettered worship he gave up. He was the very agent of creation and yet he took on this fleshy stuff and he died for us. Jesus had the right when the Father asked him, You need to go down and become one of them and die for them so that they can be with us forever. He could have said, no way, Jose. It's my right. And he would have been right. I mean, it was his right as God. But he didn't do it. He gave up his rights for you and for me so that Paul says the words, I've become all things to all people so that by all means I may save some. You know, that's probably what Jesus could say. Couldn't he? I mean, Jesus could say, I have become all things, 
human to all people for the whole world that by all means I have li- I've done everything that I can to save sinners by my life and death so that I might save some of them. And so if you're not a believer this morning, if you have not accepted that Jesus Christ gave up his rights for you, if you keep pushing and demanding and wanting your right, your way, your life, you live for yourself, you're not most likely uh, a believer in this sense. And so I invite you to place your faith in the one who gave up all of his rights just for you, to live for you, to know you, and to be reconnected with you. Let's pray. Father,